Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. As the U.S. looks for ways to kick its oil habit, some powerful members of Congress say we should fill her up with a liquid form of coal. Colder liquids will happen. I don't think you can stop it. For those who are opposed to it, they better get their uh, shields up. But critics say coal would cook the climate, the curious history and controversial future of liquid coal. We'll take a closer look at the booming field of biofuels, too. And a composer takes her inspiration from insects. Actually, I asked myself, what would Mr. Cicada do? What would he sound like if he had a whole orchestra like I have? A symphony played on six legs. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young, sitting in for Steve Kerwood. The world runs on oil. But as oil supplies drop and concern about climate change grows, the search is on for alternative fuels. We'll take a close look at two possible substitutes. In a few minutes, we'll hear about the promise and pitfalls of some biofuels. But first, how about filling up your tank with coal? That's right, that hard rock can also be turned into a liquid fuel for transportation. The U.S. has enough coal to last 200 years or more. A lot of people on Capitol Hill think it could replace oil. And liquid coal is also getting a lift from the U.S. Air Force. Energy for us is a national security issue. We need energy to do the job that the American people pay us to do, and that is fly and fight. That's Air Force Assistant Secretary William Anderson. He says the Air Force burns through some two and a half billion gallons of aviation fuel in a year. A recent test proved a B-52 bomber could fly on liquid coal. This looks like the best viable uh, non-oil option for us. That's what Kentucky Republican Senator Jim Bunning likes to hear. Bunning teamed with Illinois Democrat Barack Obama on a bill to promote coal refineries. It's one of several proposals from powerful coal state members of Congress. Bunning says liquid coal would even be good for the environment. In spite of what everybody says, if they do their homework and their scientific background checks, they will find it burns significantly cleaner than any other synthetic fuel. Indeed, compared to gasoline, liquid coal puts out less sulfur, nitrogen, and particulate matter. But it does produce a lot of the greenhouse gas carbon dioxide. Phil Clapp at the advocacy group National Environmental Trust says that makes it a bad choice for the climate. The average gallon of a liquefied coal fuel will generate twice as much carbon dioxide, twice as much global warming pollution as a gallon of gasoline. Supporters say they could capture the extra carbon from coal as the liquid is produced. And that yields a fuel with tailpipe greenhouse gas emissions about the same as gasoline. But Clapp doubts that would happen. The reality is we haven't demonstrated that on a mass scale so that it can even be used for electric power plants yet. And that's one of the reasons for the phenomenal $8 billion price tag on every plant. 
That high cost explains why Wall Street investors have not jumped on the liquid coal bandwagon. Industry proponents are hopeful that government help could get the first few plants built, priming the pump for private investment in more. Everybody wants to be the first person to build the fifth plant. That's John Ward. He's with an energy development company called Headwaters Energy. Ward's been making the rounds in Washington, pitching liquid coal to lawmakers. He can also tell the fuel's curious history. It starts with two German scientists early in the 20th century. This is kind of the Saturday Night Live joke. It's Hans and Franz. They were behind the first development of a catalyst. Hans and Franz fuel would have had a pretty nice ring to it. Unfortunately, the catalyst they invented went by their last names, Fischer and Tropes. It turned coal into a liquid that could be refined into gasoline, diesel, or aviation fuel. And Germany found a use for that in the 1940s. In World War II, Allied forces cut Germany's oil supply. So Nazis kept their war machine running on liquid coal. After the war, the fuel fell out of favor, except in South Africa. South Africa had lots of coal, very little oil, and reason to worry that it could be cut off from the world's petroleum trade. Listen, destroy white South Africa, and this country will drift into faction strife, chaos, and poverty. That was P.W. Bota, one of the last and most defiant leaders of South Africa's apartheid government. Facing an international trade embargo, South Africa invested heavily in coal-to-liquid refineries. Long after apartheid rule passed, South Africa's energy company Sasol remains a world leader. John Ward says the industry takes root in countries with a strong interest in developing domestic fuels. In both Germany and South Africa, it was because they lost access to liquid fuels from other parts of the world. And that's exactly the same situation that faces the United States today. People are interested in doing cold liquids here because we're tired of sending trillions of dollars to countries who don't particularly like us and uh, be able to to seize the initiative and create an industry that, that uses an American resource and creates American jobs to provide a more dependable source of liquid fuels. The U.S. has been down this road before. If you remember bell bottoms and disco, you probably also remember this. Good evening. Tonight I want to have an unpleasant talk with you about a problem that's unprecedented in our history. With the exception of preventing war, this is the greatest challenge that our country will face during our lifetime. The energy crisis has not yet overwhelmed us, but it will if we do not act quickly. During the energy crisis of the 1970s, President Jimmy Carter pumped billions into liquid coal. We can protect ourselves from uncertain supplies by reducing our demand for oil, by making the most of our abundant resources such as coal. A few demonstration projects were built, but the country ended up with little to show for its money. When the oil-rich nations of OPEC let more oil flow, prices dropped and industry lost interest in oil alternatives. So what should we learn from this liquid coal history? Industry booster John Ward says it teaches us that we need to support alternative fuels against market manipulation by the oil cartels. That's an appropriate national security role for the federal government to step in and provide conditions that allow this industry to get started on a fair footing. But Phil Clapp of the National Environmental Trust sees a different lesson. This is the resurrection of Jimmy Carter's ill-fated synthetic fuels program. All he ended up with was kind of a taxpayer ripoff. 
this is not something that's ever survived in the marketplace, and it's only governments dumping big amounts of money into it. Some in Congress share CLAP's concerns about cost and climate. And they also worry that liquid coal would undercut other alternative fuels, like ethanol from cellulose. But the White House included liquid coal in a recent proposal on alternative fuels. And supporters, like New Mexico's Republican Senator Pete Domenici, are confident it will get help from Washington. Coal to liquids will happen. I don't think you can stop it. For those who are opposed to it, they better get the, their uh, shields up. Whatever the U.S. does, it looks like liquid coal is expanding elsewhere. China is building new facilities in its coal-producing regions. There's no silver bullet in the search to replace oil. Biofuels are also booming. Things like ethanol from corn and sugarcane and diesel derived from palm oil are attracting interest and investment worldwide. And the European Union has set an ambitious target to replace nearly 6% of petroleum with biofuels in just the next three years. That will take a lot of plants and a lot of cropland that Europe simply does not have. So the EU is looking to the developing world particularly Southeast Asia. That's where Fred Stoley is keeping an eye on forests for the World Resources Institute. Stoley says Europe's appetite for biofuel could take a big bite out of the region's forests. You would need around 3 million acres of biodiesel to replace 1% of the need of European Union. Probably that crop would come from Southeast Asia, and mainly at the moment I would say Malaysia and Indonesia Oil palm, which is the, the main favorite crop for exchanging biodiesel. Hmm. Oil palm from Malaysia, Indonesia. Is that a good thing for those countries? Well, it's a mixed bag. It could be a good thing if you think about how many people could work in those plantations. The development for those countries, I mean, they might be the new OPEC countries of the future, but it could be devastating for the environment if not done right. Why is that? Well, uh, you make an oil palm plantation on, at the moment, a tropical rainforest. You have to cut the forest, you have to burn the forest. It's got a lot of CO2 emission and also on the side of all kind of biological functions you might go wrong. Hmm. And what makes it especially good for a biofuel? Well, it has a high energy content. So if you compare, let's say there are three big crops everybody's talking about, there's sugarcane, and that has just the highest rate of return in energy. Oil palm follows directly behind that. It's also a very high content of energy matter. Unfortunately, corn has a very low energy output. Part of why people are so hot for biofuels these days is the idea that we need to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions from the fuels that we burn. If we are using biofuels, are we sure that we're really helping on the global warming equation there or, or not? Again, sorry to say, it's a mixed bag. Yes, if, if you think about there's now a grassland, let's say, in Indonesia, and you put an oil palm plantation there, so you store more carbon, it will be really beneficial. But in the same way, if you would make those plantations, let's say on a peat swamp forest, you burn this peat swamp, you burn the forest, you put a plantation, that you actually increase climate change. You have a lot of emission from carbon. And in Indonesia, they have the biggest peat swamps in the world, and these peat swamps are 30, 40 feet thick, and it's all carbon. And so if you would burn that, that would an enormous emission of carbon would give that. And that's very detrimental for climate change. So where do you see things going? Are you hopeful that we're going to get a, a grip on things and make biofuels uh, work the way we want them to? Or are you worried that, uh, that biofuels might backfire on us? 
I am a positive attitude. I think it will be a, a great asset. We can really reduce our carbon emissions, so be good for climate change. And I think that many countries would really could benefit from it. And also, I mean, beloved countries could diversify the energy need. You don't have to go to the OPEC countries only. You can go to other countries to substitute part of your energy. But I think the key thing is sure that the certification issues are, are sorted out that countries really plan ahead, they make sure it's not many of these plantations come not from forest as it is now. And really make sure that a new plantation there's all kind of safeguards in it. And also countries who buy those biofuels look at those safeguards and say only buy it when a certain of these safeguards are in order. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we're not just talking about uh, Indonesia and, and Malaysia and pointing our fingers at them. We're saying, hey, the, the wealthy consumer nations have a responsibility here, too. They definitely have a responsibility. I mean, they, in the end, buy the most of the products. And so if they don't demand it, then why would the country make the effort to do it? So it is, it is a big responsibility on this side, on the Western countries, to say, yes, we really like biofuels, but we only like the biofuels if several of these criteria are met. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. Fred Stoley monitors Forests for the World Resources Institute. You can find more on the challenges of biofuels and liquid coal at LOE.org. Coming up, modern genetics and patent law pose a fundamental philosophical challenge. Who owns life? Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. For the last few weeks, we've been marking the 16th anniversary of our program by revisiting and updating some of the award-winning stories from our archives. For the final installment of our series, we're pointing the Wayback Machine to 1994 for one of the first reports to highlight concerns about what was then a new practice, claiming ownership of genetic material, in particular, the DNA of human beings. Reporter Bob Carty of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation explored the tale of a human cell line from a group of Panamanian Indians on which the United States government had taken out a patent. The story raised the fundamental question of who owns life, and it won an Edward R. Murrow Award from the Radio and Television News Directors Association. We'll take a listen to that story now, and afterwards, we'll catch up with the Canadian activist who was among the first to draw attention to the practice of patenting human genes. Here's Bob Carty. In a large basement room in Rockville, Maryland, white vapor hisses from hoses as they charge eight steel tanks with liquid nitrogen. Inside the tanks, at 211 degrees below zero, are tiny glass vials, one and a half million of them. Each vial contains a little piece of life, of bacteria, viruses, fungi, plants, animals, and human beings. This is the American Type Culture Collection, or ATCC. The ATCC is a complex of three buildings with heavy security doors. Inside, the atmosphere is a curious mix between a library and a distribution warehouse. The ATCC does a bit of both. In part, it's a cell library, where scientists deposit genetic material as a requirement of the patent process. The ATCC also sells cloned samples of that material to other researchers. The ATCC even has a catalog on computer disk. That's how a Canadian researcher first came across evidence of genetic prospecting. 
The researcher was Pat Mooney, the director of a biodiversity research organization called the Rural Advancement Foundation International. One day last summer, Pat Mooney was browsing through the ATCC catalog on his home computer in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He was hoping to find something about seeds in Asia, but he stumbled on something else. I was really trying to track something down related to India, so I typed in India and was trying to do a word search through it that way, and, and suddenly on my screen one of the options that popped up was a uh, Guaymi Indian woman from Panama, which is not what I was looking for. Um, uh, when I, as I read through it, I could see that they were saying that they had the human cell line and that for the low, low sum of $127, I could have my own Guaymi Indian woman from Panama in my own little test tube. And I, I don't know what to say. I, I was stunned. I, to me, it was just an incredible thought that you could do something like that. At the time, Pat Mooney didn't know what to do with that odd piece of information. But a couple of weeks later, he was looking at a different computerized database, one that lists applications for patents in Europe. He typed in the word Guaymi. And suddenly there she was on the screen, the, the patent application. The title of the patent was Guaymi Indians from Panama. And to me, the most astonishing aspect of all of this was that the assignee for this patent, the one who was applying for the patent, was the secretary of the Department of Commerce of the United States government. And, and uh, I mean, how is it that someone who is the head of, head of a major government department of the United States, uh, on behalf of the United States, is claiming the human cell line of not just an indigenous person, but, but the citizen of a foreign country? The foreign country was Panama, where in the western rainforests, 124,000 Guaymi native people live. It all goes back to the 1980s, when the genetic revolution was taking off. Scientists became interested in Aboriginal people because, as isolated populations, they might have a few unique genes or cells, and such cells or genes could make drugs that could be worth billions. Researchers had already discovered something special about the Guaymi. Many of them carried a kind of retrovirus, which at the time was thought to be associated with the viruses that cause leukemia and AIDS. In 1990, some American doctors went to the jungles of western Panama. They took blood samples, including one from a 26-year-old Guaymi mother of two. The researchers say they do not know her name. Back in the United States, they took one of the woman's cells and cloned it duplicated it hundreds of times. That's called a cell line, and the U.S. Department of Commerce put a patent claim on it. One of the researchers was Dr. Jonathan Kaplan from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta. When you work for the government, the government encourages people who develop things like that to apply for a patent. If there is money to be made, the vast majority of it comes right back to the government. There was really no thinking about individual motives or profits. Dr. Kaplan's motives may not have been financial, but the U.S. government clearly considered the Guaymi cells of potential value, a possible windfall for the government itself or something it could sell to private biotech companies. Meanwhile, Pat Mooney, the Winnipeg researcher, had established contact with leaders of the Guaymi people. They were shocked when he told them they were being used as genetic raw material. From Panama City, I reached Jose Acosta, a Guaymi and a consultant to the Guaymi National Congress. When the Spanish arrived in 1492, they took away our gold. 
When the countries of Latin America became independent, they stole our land. Today, the same thing is happening. They want to take ourselves. The exploitation is still going on. What most outraged the Guaymi was that they were never consulted. The researchers claim that they did tell the Guaymi, in general, that they were the subject of medical studies. But there's an obvious pitfall here. Many Guaymi are illiterate. Many don't even speak Spanish. And in their language, there's no word for genetics. Dr. Jonathan Kaplan concedes that the Guaymi were not given the full picture. I think most people wouldn't understand all the details of all the laboratory work that was being done. So in terms of specifically uh, notifying the Guaymi that a patent application was being put forth, I don't believe that was done, but again, mainly because I don't think anyone felt it was really necessary. No one was trying to uh, dishonor them or to take anything from them in any way. But the Guaymi say something was taken from them. They call it theft. They say that if their bodies contain something that can benefit humanity, they are not against sharing it. But they want to have control over the disposition of their genes. And they resent scientists who are willing to spend so much money to preserve the Guaymi and their genetic history in a test tube while there are so few resources to help the Guaymi survive as a people. Guaymi spokesperson Jose Acosta. We are not opposed to sharing with humanity. What we oppose is being exploited while our poverty is not resolved. We have looked into this biotechnology work. To process a sample, the cost per person is $2,300, while the rural salary of Guaymi is less than $80 a year. The Guaymi sent letters to the U.S. government demanding the patent application be dropped. With the help of Pat Mooney's organization, they took the issue to the United Nations. Then, last November, the U.S. government withdrew its patent application. Officials contend it was not because of the protests. They say there was just not enough commercial interest in the cell line to continue the patent process. That may be true. But it suggests that if the Guaymi woman had something more valuable in her cells, the U.S. government would still be trying to slap a patent on them. The U.S. government still claims ownership of the cell line. It won't be returned to Panama as the Guaymi have requested. It's still for sale at the American Type Culture Collection. Human material is one of the fastest-growing collections at the ATCC, and this is just one of hundreds of cell libraries around the world. Many are private and restricted. Pat Mooney contains that private biotech companies are engaged in a gold rush for genes that researchers have yet to uncover. What we've seen in Panama was the beginning of it, just the tip of the iceberg. Um, we've discovered two more examples of patent claims by the U.S. government again against uh, the lives, uh, the human cell lines of people in Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands. And it's not just an issue for the third world. A Swedish pharmaceutical company recently secured a patent on a gene from the people of an isolated village in Italy. The company may soon be marketing drugs from the gene to treat heart disease. Meanwhile, native groups in Canada and Australia have joined those in Latin America in calling for a halt to gene prospecting. For the biotechnology companies, that's an alarming prospect. 
Charles Ludlam is vice president of the Biotechnology Industry Organization, a Washington lobby. Ludlam agrees that gene research should be conducted with prior informed consent, but he argues that patenting other people's genes and cells is necessary to compensate the biotech industry for its costly investments. I don't think there is any ethical question involved with trying to create medicines that help human beings to avoid suffering and to avoid death. I think we need to go uh, wherever medical knowledge can be found. Uh, and if we find that there is an aboriginal group that has a special um, propensity uh, to have a disease or a special immunity to a disease, then I hope that they would be willing to share that with the rest of the world so that all of us can benefit. But biotechnology critics don't trust the industry. Andrew Kimbrell is the author of The Human Body Shop, The Engineering and Marketing of Life. He argues that to control and regulate gene research and patenting, we need new international treaties. Such treaties might guarantee indigenous groups a share in the commercial returns from their genes. Kimbrell maintains that genes should not be private property, but rather a public heritage for all humanity. I think what we are seeing increasingly around the, the, the world is an enclosure of the genetic commons. And we're in an extraordinary situation where I think in a very short time we're going to see all of the 100,000 or more human genes owned by a few companies. At the ATCC Cell Library in Rockville, Maryland, a worker is counting out tiny glass vials, packaging them up for sale. Little pieces of the living world and, ever more frequently, little pieces of ourselves. There are almost no rules to govern this new commerce in the little parts of us. Governments and the international community are just starting to debate the issue. Back in Winnipeg, Pat Mooney insists there's a philosophical question our society has yet to grapple with. Patents were meant for sewing machines, now they're being applied to Guayami people in Panama. We have a new kind of, a tech, of an industry out there. We no longer have a food industry or a pharmaceutical industry or a chemicals industry per se. We really have a life industry. And the thought that someone could have exclusive monopoly control for 17 years over the products, the processes, and in fact even the formula of life is a scary thought. The fundamental question is who owns life? For Living on Earth, I'm Bob Carty. Well, that story from the Living on Earth archives in 1994. We caught up with one of reporter Bob Carty's sources for that story, Pat Mooney. He's now the executive director of the Etcetera Group, a Canadian watchdog organization that tracks international issues of property rights surrounding genetic material and nanotechnology. Pat, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thanks, Jeff. Nice to be here. Now, you were one of the first people to start uh, raising concerns about these issues. That was more than a decade ago, and so much has changed in the intervening time in in genetics. Uh, Have the uh, rules regarding patenting kept pace with the changes in technology? Not at all. Um, I think governments are still grappling with, and certainly the medical research community is still grappling with uh, how to handle these kinds of issues. Meanwhile, the patents have continued and and moved down in a sense that we've moved from just patenting life to patenting even the building blocks of life, Uh, the actual basic atoms and molecules that make up the DNA, that make up the genes, that make up everything else. The technology has certainly rapidly moved ahead and and moved very deeply into indigenous communities around the world, well beyond what we thought uh, back in 1994, and governments are still scratching their heads. 
Uh, we, we heard some fairly dire predictions in the story there that uh, the genes of, of uh, life uh, for human beings would be owned by a few companies. Has that come to pass? Yes, it has, as best as we know it. And it's harder to track down the information. I guess one of the more areas that have developed more in the last few years has been the ability of companies and patent offices to be obscure about what actually is being done. We no longer see clearly written on the titles of patents, Guaymi Indian woman from Panama or Haggai man from Papua New Guinea. And we see the controls, uh, the visible controls, falling into the hands of a, of a handful of companies of the 24,000 or so human genes that we now know are part of our nature, about a little bit under 5,000 of them have clear patents on them already. Of those, probably basically three enterprises control about 60% of the genes we know to be patented. Hmm. You know, um, on the other hand, there's such promise for good to society from uh, nanotechnology and genetics you have to have some way to motivate people to do the intensive and expensive research, and that's what a patent is uh, supposed to do, right? So if we don't have patenting, how do we encourage the kind of uh, research that we need or we desire to have done? Well, you're right. We do want to encourage innovation, but I think most people who look in this field now would, would have to agree that patents are really a barrier to innovation. They're a barrier to entry for new companies coming into the marketplace because patents are, are there to blockade the technology, keep everybody out of that field. Um, and the cost of patents and the litigation around patents is so high now, so expensive, that only the, the biggest players can really get into the act and duke it out in the, in the courts to protect their patent interests. Uh, what we need to have is, is an innovation system which certainly awards creativity, encourages dissemination of that creativity and guarantees that there's some equitability and access to it as well. And that can be done, I think, without giving exclusive monopoly to those who are in the inventors. They shouldn't be able to set all of the conditions of sale and vary the conditions of sale uh, for their patented products from one customer to another. Well, this is, this is fascinating. There are so many things here that you are keeping tabs on. I'm wondering, of all these things that we've talked about here, is there one that you put at the top of your list of concerns? Can I give two? There are two very specific claims in, in this field that we find quite scary. One of them is, is one uh, that Monsanto has where uh, it's claimed the species of soybeans. Uh, any biotech work on the crop of soybeans anywhere in the world is a violation of Monsanto's patent. The idea that you can actually own an entire species of a major crop is, is simply outrageous. The second example I give is, is one by Syngenta, one of the other big companies based in, in Switzerland. Syngenta has actually laid out a claim on how a plant flowers. So it's actually the strip of DNA that allows a plant to flower. And it says that its claim applies to 40 different species in the food system, so in, including rice and wheat, bananas, and so on. So if Syngenta's patent claim is ever accepted, and it's still in, in the patent offices, Syngenta would own the world's food supply, basically, all by itself. We think that if the company got the patent, they would be forced to back off it. I think there would be something of a revolution before that patent was allowed to be implemented. But it shows the, the failures of the patent system and the inability of governments to address the question of who owns life and who owns nature. Is that still the right question? That was the, the question posed in 1994 in that story, who owns life? Are we still asking that question? We're asking it, but we're again, it's become more fundamental than that. It's, it's not just life. It is the nature that builds the life. In this field of synthetic biology or nanobiotechnology, we're now seeing patent claims, again, that are on the building blocks of life. 
And that's the scariest thing of all, because they're below the radar screen of politicians and policymakers of any kind, because they don't seem to be consequential until the patent is granted, and then suddenly you realize that you've given away the Garden of Eden. Pat Mooney still tracking the question, who owns life? A question that uh, seems to get more complex as time goes on. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, you can find a link to Pat Mooney's Etc. Group and other resources on the question of who owns life at LOE.org. Coming up, the sounds of cicadas and other insects inspire a symphony. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation and from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund, celebrating the 2007 Goldman Environmental Prize winners. Learn more about each winner at www.goldmanprize.org. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. It's planting season around much of North America. And before long, crops all over the continent will need swarms of honeybees to pollinate the flowers so they can produce about a third of our food. But as we recently reported, those swarms are getting smaller. Roughly a quarter of America's 2.4 million honeybee colonies have been lost in recent months. Honeybees are in trouble, both here and abroad, and no one knows exactly why. This past week brought a summit on what's come to be called colony collapse disorder. Keith Delaplane was part of that discussion. He's an entomologist at the University of Georgia and senior editor of the Journal of Apicultural Research. Professor Delaplane says the meeting was the first real opportunity for experts from around the U.S. to compare the latest findings on the honeybee problem. The common thread was to try to get a handle on uh, the reality and the extent of colony deaths And um, there is also a a real interest in trying to identify possible causes and their interactions, and then finally draft a list of research priorities that could be fundable and researchable and try to get some real answers. Uh, So do we know yet what's causing this, or do we at least have, uh, you know, some top suspected culprits here? We have a good idea of of potential causes. In fact, most of them are old things that we're familiar with from years of honeybee problems. A lot of this goes back to the 1980s when there were exotic honeybee parasites that came to our shores, a couple parasitic mites. Hmm, So it might be the mites. It might be the mites. I'm pretty sure it's the mites. But there's other things, too. And there's other disease-causing agents, uh, some of which are not even possibly identified or understood. And there's other management factors that certainly play a negative role. It's helpful to remember that the commercial beekeeping is rough. It's rough on the beekeeper. It's rough on the bees. They're um, loaded up on trucks in the middle of the night. They're trucked over miles and miles from coast to coast. And this is stressful on the bees. So uh, overworked honeybees, is that what you're talking about? It's possible to overwork even the busy bee. (laughs) And 
So they're moving all around. That's not necessarily causing them to die, but it's stressing them and making them more vulnerable, right? Exactly. We have evidence that when you add a succession of stresses onto the honeybee colony, it takes very little additional stress to tip a colony over the top. You have one parasite, that's bad. You add another parasite, that's bad. Let's add a disease pathogen. Let's add poor nutrition. And now let's load it on a truck and move it in the middle of the night. Uh, maybe we shouldn't be surprised that some of these colonies are dying. Hmm. So, and what about uh, pesticides or other uh, chemical toxins? Pesticides are an age-old enemy of beekeeping. And uh, fortunately, the classes of chemicals that are used in recent years tend to be less acutely toxic. So we're not seeing large, dramatic bee kills like we were accustomed to in the 1960s and 70s. That's the good news. The bad news is a lot of the new chemistry that we're using has more subtle, sublethal effects that are still there, but hard to detect. Mm -hmm. The best example of this is some new classes of chemistry that impairs the honeybee's cognitive ability. And when it comes to honeybee cognitive ability, one of the most important things is your ability to find your nest. If you're out flying, visiting flowers, can you find your home again? Hmm. And a lot of these new chemicals do impair the bee's ability to return to their nest. And this is subtle. It's very easy to overlook. And what the beekeeper sees is just a dwindling colony population. And I understand that uh, aside from this new phenomenon, uh, pollinators in general haven't been doing very well. This is a systemic problem that transcends beekeeping and honey production. It also involves more than honeybees uh, because we have, in general, an increasing acreage of bee-pollinated crops at the same time that we're having a decrease in the density of our pollinators. And this is creating a pollinator deficit that is of broad societal concern, because literally the quality of diets that we enjoy in the developed world are very largely dependent on bee-pollinated plants. Mm-hmm. Are we asking too much of the honeybee here? Should we be looking at, uh, at other possible pollinators to help out if, if the honeybee is, uh, is hurting? I fully agree with that. We have a large number of native bee species here in North America. Uh, most of them are overshadowed by the honeybee, which is, by the way, itself an alien species. It was imported here from Europe in the 1600s. But these native, solitary, and bumblebees that exist here in North America are themselves uh, important contributors to our food supply and the pollination chain. Our knowledge of them has lagged behind our knowledge of the honeybee simply because they are not as manageable and therefore not as easy to study. Now, you mentioned the bumblebee as a, a possible backup, the plan B. What about uh, other insects, uh, other animals altogether that pollinate? Are they options? Surely. There's plenty of other animals that visit flowers, and any animal that visits a flower, including some physical forces like rain and gravity, all of these are viable pollen vectors. The reason bees, in general, sort of rise to the top on these lists is the fact that they are extremely efficient at what they do. They're basically flying fuzzballs, and the pollen sticks to their bodies very readily. They have a natural affinity for flowers, whereas a lot of insects just visit them accidentally. So, yes, other pollinators are viable and certainly to be encouraged, but nothing will ever replace bees. 
Professor Keith Delaplane. Thank you very much for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Keith Delaplane is a professor of entomology at the University of Georgia. He took part in that recent summit on the crisis facing America's vital honeybee colonies. There's much more about pollinator problems and ways to be part of a solution at LOE.org. Just ahead, other flying insects inspire a new symphony. But first... There are places in the American landscape that are unlike anywhere else in the world. Places that stand out and grab the memory like no other. We've been chronicling some of these unique natural features in our periodic series, Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape. This week, writer Eva Salidas brings us her definition of a rare and sometimes exciting phenomenon known as the tidal bore. Tidal bore. A term coined by seamen around 1600, tidal bore describes a violent wall of water rushing up a shallow, narrowing river, estuary, or bay. Bores, also called bore tides, form when an incoming tide meets a particular geography, a resistance, sand, silt bars, narrowing channels, and heaps water up to 15 feet high, moving inland at 10 to 15 miles per hour. Most bores build after low water of a spring tide, the year's biggest tidal flux. Famous bore tides occur in the Truro River in Canada's Bay of Fundy and in Turnigan Arm in Alaska's Cook Inlet, the latter driven by a tidal rise of 30 feet in six hours. In summer, travelers driving along Turnigan Arm can witness windsurfers bundled in dry suits dancing along the wave's face, their brightly colored sails a dramatic contrast to the gray, silty inlet. When it surges up the lower Amazon, the boar, Pororoca, can shave forests and destroy homes. It is greatly feared by locals, yet ridden by elite surfers from around the world. Eva Salidas is a writer, teacher, and marine biologist from Homer, Alaska. Her definition of tidal bore appears in the book Home Ground, Language for an American Landscape, edited by Barry Lopez and Deborah Gortney. The layered sounds of insects on a warm late spring evening have often been compared to a symphony. Well, now they really are. Composer Mayra Warshower's first symphony was inspired by the sounds she heard in the rainforest of Peru and in her own backyard in South Carolina. And it just had its debut performance by the Dayton Philharmonic Orchestra. Producer Eileen LeBlanc has this profile of the composer and her new work called Living, Breathing Earth. I had been recording the cicadas and the backyard sounds and was listening really carefully to them. I wanted to see what were the natural rhythms, what were the sounds that were around us. But I was playing those over and over again, the recordings of the cicadas and the birds and the water. And the, the rhythms of the cicadas really caught my ear. They have like a 21-second or or so span of phrase on the shaker it goes like um, 
or with my mouth, it's this I was interested in the, the shape of that phrase, how it starts slowly and gets faster and then and builds and head to the crescendo, and then it has this glissando at the end. So I took that length and that kind of the energy rising and diminuendoing, getting softer, and let that be the arch of the phrasing for the first movement, which is called Call of the Cicadas. Actually, I asked myself, what would Mr. Cicada do? What would he sound like if he had a whole orchestra like I have to play? It wouldn't just be high pitches, and it wouldn't just be those rhythms. Well, what would it be? It certainly would be a a broader um, pitch range from low to high, and so I was able to bring in the basses and the, the low brass and... But I also wanted to give a sense of the summer air and the humidity and the thickness of that summer heat. And so I had these, I had the oboes and bassoons. And maybe it's a mosquito, I don't know, but it's, it's one of those insects that kind of comes out when it's really hot in the south. And... And I associate it with this really thick, wonderful, hot air, which I love. I'm from North Carolina, and I love the summer heat. The recordings in Peru were not as dramatic as the ones I had in my backyard. But what those recordings have is a richness of layers, so many different different animals making their quiet contributions to an incredibly rich soundscape. My family and I, when we went to Peru, we stayed at a lodge right on the Tawayo River, and one night we went on a canoe ride down this Tawaya River. And it was a night with a no moon. Um, So all the stars were really bright. And not only the stars were twinkling in their dark background, but along the sides were the fireflies. So we had the stars twinkling and then the fireflies connecting the heavens really to the earth. And then, since we were on the river, it didn't stop at the earth because it was all reflected in the dark water below. And it was so peaceful. movement captures the energy of the butterflies that they're swirling around. By the side of the river, there were these yellow butterflies that were in a pattern. And of course, the sun was shining on them and lighting up the water, um, glistening there. And it was really um, kind of a sparkly sounding, but I put it in the strings and just had them 
move really fast and, and very lightly. I mean, I hate to proselytize, but in this time, I feel it's so important for us to reconnect with how much we love this earth. I know everyone loves the earth. Who has ever seen a child that doesn't love to play outside? We all come into life loving the earth. And we need to wake up. So I hope this wakes us up. I hope it gives us comfort. I hope it gives us joy. I hope it lulls us to sleep in the second movement. I hope it wakes us up with wings in the third movement. I hope the first movement just makes us want to go outside and listen to all the weird and great stuff that there is. And, and I hope the last movement just inspires us and carries us forward. Warshower's new symphony, Living, Breathing Earth, was commissioned by the Dayton and South Carolina Philharmonic Orchestras and the Western Piedmont Symphony. We heard the South Carolina Philharmonic, conducted by Nicholas Smith and recorded by engineer Jeff Francis. And our piece was produced by Eileen LeBlanc. Next week on Living on Earth, 13 years ago, Hammerskold Semwinga set out to preserve the elephant population in his native Zambia by helping to create economic alternatives to poaching. Now he's won the 2007 Goldman Environmental Prize for Africa. To me, I believe each continent, God gave its own habitation. Elephants, they are part of our blood. So if they are not there, then the continent is not there. Saving elephants and people in Zambia. Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with the sounds that inspired the living, breathing Earth Symphony. Composer Mayura Warshower recorded these sounds of the night in her backyard in South Carolina. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Jennifer Percy, Emily Taylor, and Peter Thompson, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Paige Doty and Megan Vigent. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes, and our executive producer is Steve Kerwood. You can find us at loe.org. I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. 
Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt, smoothies, and milk. 10% of profits are donated to efforts that help protect and restore the earth. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Saunders Hotel Group of Boston's Lenox and Copley Square Hotels, serving you and the environment while helping preserve the past and protect the future. 800-225-7676. PRI Public Radio International.